Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 1st, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program is a means for getting us past November 3rd, December 3rd, January 3rd, I call it January 6th, 2021, and beyond. With my guests, we can collectively clear the debris from the last four days, the last four weeks, not to mention the last four years or the last 400 years. My guest today is Dr. Laura Mosqueda, professor of family medicine and geriatrics at USC's Keck School of Medicine to cover the institutional, the cultural, and personal aspects of our elder population amidst the current pandemic. Dr. Mosqueda is a genuine authority on geriatric and family medicine, elder abuse, and care of the elderly and underserved. Prior to joining USC, Dr. Mosqueda was on UCI's School of Medicine faculty as Associate Dean of Primary Care, Chair and Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics, and holder of the Ronald W. Reagan Endowed Chair in Geriatrics. She was the principal investigator on a Reynolds Foundation grant that integrated geriatrics education throughout the UCI School of Medicine. Dr. Mosqueda is also the co-director of the National Center on Elder Abuse, a federally funded clearinghouse for information on research, training, best practices, news and resources on elder abuse, neglect, and exploitation. She's the principal investigator for a major health and human services funded study that addresses primary and secondary prevention of the abuse of people who have a dementing illness and is leader of numerous other activities related to elder abuse. Dr. Mosqueda comes to us today from her office in Alhambra in the LA area. Welcome to Digging Out, Dr. Laura Mosqueda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much. It was practically a year ago as the COVID-19 hotspots in the Seattle area and then elsewhere were situated in nursing homes and other senior or elder residences. This is precisely the kind of setting that your informed and shall I say activist gaze has been trained on for many years. Dr. Mosqueda, talk about what you realized was happening, what you were bracing for last February, maybe March. Well, I think it was pretty apparent, as you said, this outbreak started at a nursing home just outside of Seattle. And I think many of us who've done work in nursing homes in a variety of capacities, as I have, realized that this is a very vulnerable population. And it was really going to put a magnifying glass on some of the problems in nursing homes. Uh, you know, there's some great nursing homes out there, but there are also some that are quite problematic, who we know have problems with things like infection control, who have a very strong profit motive and uh, don't provide adequate staff training, et cetera. And indeed, uh, we saw COVID-19 run rampant through the nursing homes and create a lot of suffering for the older adults who live there, for their family members, and for staff who work there as well. And I've followed some of your amazing deliveries on elder abuse and institutional settings. And I want to know if, I mean, there's, you could say elder abuse has so many gradations to it that if the staff that you're referring to 
if they are an underremunerated employee, if this was going to be one of those hazards you were watching, like you knew that they were going to be caregivers in multiple jobs that they were keeping and that that was going to open up the hazard with certainty. Were, I mean, were you aware of that going into the opening up of this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's a little frustrating to say, for everybody all of a sudden to say, oh, wow, look at all these problems, when there are quite a few people, including myself, who've been talking about these problems for a long time. It just came to the forefront and became more obvious through all the deaths that occurred with COVID. But it basically, it's just revealing the problems that have been there for a very long time, including insufficient staff wages, you know, and many of the people who work in nursing homes have to work in multiple places in order to make a living wage and go home to living situations where there are multiple people uh, living in crowded conditions. And it just, it just sort of multiplies the problems for the staff, you know, inadequate PPE, et cetera. And then of course, there's what's going on for the people who live there and, and for loved ones of people who live there can't visit mom. And, and we know how important visiting loved ones is who live in nursing homes. It's kind of a check that can happen. Like, hey, it looks like mom hasn't been bathed. What's going on? Or somebody left a tray of food there and she can't open that carton of milk by herself. And um, just the important role of outsiders coming in got eliminated in almost overnight. So to a certain extent, it was understandable, you know, nursing homes had to keep things under control. You don't want too many people coming in, but now it's, in my view, more of an excuse to keep people out. We must and can find safe ways to allow visitors to come in and visit their loved ones. Well, I, in all earnestness, I ask, as you were watching the additional federal rescue packages being negotiated, your sort of, we'll call it emergency meter, elder care alarm meter must've been swinging tight to the danger zone when you were watching the aspect being negotiated about the limiting of the liability of elders' residential areas, liability in how they were managing their residents. Uh, yeah, this was just, I think an evil opportunistic thing that happened in many states where nursing homes have very limited liability and it just cry COVID over everything. Now, again, you know, I don't want to paint all with the, with the same brush and, and to a certain extent it's understandable, but do a good job. Take care of the people you're supposed to be taking care of and who you're getting paid to take care of. And particularly, you know, some of the for-profit nursing homes that have inadequate staffing ratios who are acting all surprised that older adults are dying and blaming it on COVID when appropriate care and staffing was never put in in the first place. Well, as you're monitoring sort of the meta trends as well as very specific ways of dealing on the personal level, how people can be observant about what's happening. So I, I'd like to know for the major trends, the ownership of these facilities is increasingly becoming a monopolized kind of, uh, fewer and fewer firms have the portfolios of these residential facilities. You know, I don't know the numbers on that, but we certainly know that there are some major chains and that there's very 
interesting financial arrangements that go on in terms of the companies that they work with that turn out to also profit them in a whole variety of ways. So this is really something that deserves, I was going to say investigation, but frankly, it's been investigated. We know what's going on. What we need now is enforcement and and a higher visibility. And exactly, I was going to say transparency. Right. Um, you know, one of the people, former President Trump, when he was giving all the pardons, was somebody in, who was finally a guy who got convicted related to nursing home fraud. In Florida, another in, one. In that, Florida. In, their sitting senator, their U.S. senator was already implicated in, in Medicare fraud. But this, yeah. this is a different one whose name escapes me at this moment, but, right. but and so, so anyway, that's the last word. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So to, to me, this just gets to, well, what do we believe in as a society and who do we care about? And it's the old saw of who we are can be seen by who we care for. And are we going to care for some of the most vulnerable? And what, what kind of reflection is it on us as a society if we turn a blind eye? For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out, and my guest is Dr. Laura Mosqueda, Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at USC's Keck School of Medicine. And we're talking about, right now, the sort of institutional setting in the age of COVID and the ramifications. And so to speak to what kind of society we are, it's sort of a, it's a question I ponder and I want to know, Dr. Mosqueda, if the cultural diversity in our society, is that not an opportunity to provide us with a, for those with a peripheral view of other cultures, attending to their seniors, does that set examples for other cultures that are a little more stingy about their caring for their seniors? Yeah, it's so funny that you know no matter what group i talk to when you talk about they every culture says well we're the ones who really value our elderly i've never yet met a group who said we don't care that much about our elderly now i think some demonstrate their care and concern for the elderly in better ways than than others and i do think we have a lot to learn from each other right so i don't think yeah i don't i think it's a it's a great point and and now that everything is global, it's a great opportunity for us to learn how other societies view aging, view older adults, how other societies view dementia, for example, too. You know, we're in this hypercognitive society here in the US where the worst thing in the world is to have cognitive problems, whereas other societies don't view it with the same degree of horror that we do and therefore respond and treat older adults with demanding illnesses differently than we do in this society. And those cultural different examples, they're, they're right here. I mean, I'm speaking, yeah. we're both of us in Southern California. It's a huge array of cultural influences. And I guess, Dr. Mosqueda, when I would, and I've looked at some of those amazing write-ups of whom we have lost in COVID, and I guess we can, it's a little look under the hood of how the family attended to those that have perished in this pandemic due to COVID. So it brought to my mind that there's through lines of which cultures seem to be more attentive, more caring, more selfless, more, more to their seniors. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. 
and whether that's something that can be learned and to what degree it can be learned versus it is so embedded in your culture and how you grow up and what you see around you. You know, it may be that rather than learning exactly, we can be inspired by it as well and take a look inside and see how each of us can do a little better. And I don't think it's a matter of what medical schools I mean. There's certainly that part of educating and inspiring future caregivers, but it, I'm just keep going back to that the family, the circle around the elder, where that first that role is stepped up and is deepened. But it's also a role that you're you're educating because the the caregivers take a role in how they're dignifying that patient too. And I've seen the whole continuum of mindful and ridiculous kinds of caregivers in terms of uh, my loved ones who are no longer here. Yeah. Well, and you know, there is the wisdom that comes not for everybody, but with a lot of people with aging. And it is the idea of also of the venerated elder and that many of our older adults have so much wisdom, knowledge, thoughts, perspectives to provide. And we don't, I don't think generally we look enough to our older adults to say, help us understand what the heck is going on here in our, in our country and in our world right now. So it's not as though by any stretch, all older adults need caregivers. Some do, but a lot of older adults are doing just fine or just need a little bit of help and really are an untapped resource for us and for, for our society. I know, and I, I'm actually, I'm watching on social media where there's postings about, they can't believe that their grandmother has this to say about her, you know, like her sex life or something. And they're yeah. all, there's this kind of mixed reception as like, oh, you know, more power to her or too much sharing, oversharing <laughs> grandma. So it's sort of, there's an allowance for that and a, a closed door. Like, no, I don't, I want my grandma in a two-dimensional kind of guise there. Yes, you're, you're so right. And this is where we also talk about things like ageism. You know, what is it we'll kind of tolerate uh, with, with when we, would we listen to older adults or, or not tolerate I mean, ageism is a really weird ism, right? Because it's, it's just a prejudice against our future selves. So it makes no sense. Yeah, it's um, an interesting point. Yesterday, I was seeing patients in my clinical office, and I had a medical student with me. And so I saw somebody who was 87, and I saw somebody who was 93, and they, they were both new patients to me. I had never met them before. So I'm doing a history, and, and it's such a rich history, you know, and the student was like saying, oh my gosh, you know, they've got so many problems. How do you deal with all that? And it was interesting because if you listed out all their medical problems, which we do, you know, traditionally, you have a problem list, they were both doing great. They were both doing great. So it was more our problem than their problem. And part of what I do, especially when I'm seeing a new patient, is to elicit their values and their goals so that we can provide medical care that is really in keeping with how they view their own lives and what they want for themselves going forward. And it's just a slightly different approach to medical care that allows for shared decision-making and respects the lives that they've had and allows us to talk about something deeper than just, is your medication list accurate? But how do we want to view treating 
whatever illness we might be talking about in the context of your life and what brings you meaning and what brings you contentment and joy. It's just a slightly different approach that I think helps the older adult know that we really care and that they are an important member of our society. Well, if there ever was a heady amount of funding to look at the difference in uh, that, look at that as not an intervention, but just an approach to see that perhaps with that, engaging the patient in that respect, how that might trim a good deal of either medications or the patient recovers more quickly from maybe something that's acute. And that sounds like a great path there. And that reminds me of when I think I first had the honor and pleasure of interviewing you, Dr. Mosqueda, when Atul Gawande's book first came out on being mortal. And I think that's become the Bible for looking at elder chapters in one's life, engaging one's offspring or engaging one's elders in preparing oneself or preparing one's offspring for dealing with the values and goals at an elder's point in their life. Exactly right. I mean, and it's why if we have that kind of a relationship between the physician and an older adult patient that we're then much more able to talk about what do you want in terms of advanced directives and advanced care planning? And it isn't, do you want to be intubated or not intubated? It's more, what brings you the meaning of your life and how do we provide the kind of care that facilitates that. And then you get to, so will intubation serve your goal? And it just leads you to a very different kind of a conversation that I think is important. The other piece of this is I think it ends up helping protect people against things like abuse and neglect because you're Mm -hmm. having these conversations ahead of time. You're documenting what people do want and don't want. You're maybe facilitating conversations with family members and encouraging documentation if they need legal documentation. It might be about financial planning or documentation regarding end-of-life care so that people's wishes are followed if they're unable to speak for themselves. So let me go on into the specifics of the circumstances of the COVID stay-in-place kinds of orders that the physical and the social well-being has taken a huge hit with elders who've had to stay in place. So, and I was asking around about concerns prior to this interview and their concerns were, what can a senior do, an elder do in, uh, with the the exercise regimen is completely upturned. The social interactions are reduced and that's all happening with, with, let's say complicated by a lower level of computer literacy, if there's any kind of computer literacy for that senior to navigate larger worlds. Yeah, yeah, that is 100% correct. I mean, we know that things like loneliness and isolation are horrible for older adults. It makes us more vulnerable to scams, to fraud, to getting taken in in a variety of bad ways. And for many older adults, senior centers were such an important part of their lives, what might've been for getting meals, exercise, socialization, et cetera. I live in Pasadena and I know the Pasadena Senior Center has gone to extraordinary lengths 
to keep connected with older adults because really how are they doing that dr mosqueda oh they're doing it you know they're helping older adults get online with everything from book clubs to exercise to ways of doing arts and crafts i mean they've been so creative and really and they've been providing meals in safe ways where they're they're handing them out i mean they've been absolutely incredible in also knowing who some of the more vulnerable older adults have been who were utilizing the senior center and doing special outreach to them. It's been really impressive. And I know we, we keep using this term social distancing and I hate that term. Um, I, I really prefer spatial distancing. Not physical, but spatial. Right. Okay. Not social, not social distancing. I, right. I try not to. Yeah. Myself. Okay. You know, and because I, I just hear it all over the time. Don't forget, we got to do social. No, I don't want social distancing. I want people to stay socially close, but spatially distant. So what are ways that we can help keep people close? We did a whole thing here over at, at our Keck school at USC where students, mm. not only did we provide iPads for older adults who were isolated, but we had students who were connecting with them and were available to them very quickly if they were having problems with connectivity and how to use it. Excellent. So they could call the student and say, I don't, you know, like walk me through this again. And we would. And then they ended up being able to have more social connectedness through use of technology. So does that include opening up a brand new Twitter account? I'm just curious. <laughs> My, <laughs> I mean, that, that, I mean, really? Wow. Okay. That's, well, that's good news. In the time remaining, I really want to make sure that since you've been making sure in your own postings on Twitter that we're catching those creepy, creepy kinds of developments where we talked about ageism, about how facilities or authorities that have the jurisdiction where those facilities are located, they miss elder abuse, elder neglect. Can you offer us some signs for loved ones to detect neglect and abuse by other loved ones. You trained us on that one. That's not just care providers, but there's loved ones that are also potentially neglectful. Yeah, absolutely. We tend to focus on the facilities, but the reality is most of the abuse and neglect that's going on is occurring in the community by loved ones, spouses, adult children, the most common people who are inflicting abuse and neglect. But as you alluded to earlier, you know, there's a whole range of, of abuse and neglect that occurs. And while some of it is occurring by people who have very bad intent, there also is a lot that's occurring by people who are just overwhelmed and don't know what more to do. And so if you are noticing that a loved one or a neighbor or a friend seems to be getting victimized, it's really important to intervene and see what can be done to help. Because lots of times, we, if we can catch it early, it doesn't deteriorate to some of the really awful things that we see. And we can really reverse it and, and make it right. So it is important to see if somebody is, seems to be fearful or is getting more isolated or is dirty or is ending up with untreated medical conditions that you really do step in because you might be the only person who is aware that there's a problem. Okay, it's a big, it's what it the is, center's it, all about, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, where to go? I mean, like the, right. the path, the sort of ombud sort of pathway or the, the sort of steps that are 
sort of the necessary progression of making sure that accountability is intact. Right. So, you know, Adult Protective Services is the reporting mechanism when there is a suspicion of abuse or neglect occurring in the community. The long-term care ombudsmen are the ones who work in licensed facilities such as nursing homes. Sometimes people worry about reporting to Adult Protective Services because they don't want something awful to happen because they made a report. But the reality is the APS workers are trained professionals who just want to make things right. It's very rare that things proceed to law enforcement and criminal justice and all those sorts of things. The vast majority of times, they're just trying to go in and help problem solve a bad situation so that everybody comes out right. It's constructive versus a punitive thing. You can reassure listeners. Yes, yes. You know, there are times when it needs to be punitive, but those times are actually fairly rare. Okay. So I would like for you to give us indication, Dr. Mosqueda, of the signals that you're getting, A, from the Biden-Harris administration, from Congress, from the California executive and legislative leadership, and locally that support and tell us and, and that offer that resources are on their way? Well, <laughs> I don't know what kind of resources are on their way. You know, the Elder Justice Act was passed, I don't know how many years ago now, and never has been really funded. I would hope that this new administration will pay more attention to everything from funding things like the Elder Justice Act to education, training for medical students, nurses, et cetera, so that we have a growing cadre of professionals who work with older adults. That's another important piece of things. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is just the safety net. Issues related to everything from housing to meals. We're really concerned about the growing number of older adults who are homeless. And so the importance of societal benefits for older adults is really critically important. And I'm hopeful that with this new administration, there will be a better understanding and ability to return some of the safety net social services that, that really need to, to be there. And this is at all levels, federal, state, et cetera, so that we have more availability of adult daycare that gets paid for and for meals and senior centers, et cetera. I think the takeaway from the pandemic, which I'm, I'm sure it has a way of filling up the bandwidth to deal with other arenas that the government would serve in. But do you think that the pandemic has raised on most people's radars that there are problems in elder living settings? and they are fixable. The, the essential, the importance of us contributing to improving the care there, that it's- Yeah. Is that, you know, is that one thing that may be improving since you said there hasn't been much movement from the, the Elder Justice Act, but do you think that nursing home, the, the emergency that have gone off, that that might be one way of people recognizing the shortcomings of our healthcare delivery. 
Yes. And, and what I hope now is that we aren't just recognizing it, but we're going to take steps and do something about it. And it can't be recognition without action. As you say, and you said in previous interviews, hear, hear. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say that. Well, Dr. Mosqueda, thank you so much. I appreciate your taking precious time to join us here on Digging Out today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. My guest was Dr. Laura Mosqueda, Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at USC's Keck School of Medicine, with her work focusing on geriatric healthcare and elder justice. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week.